here with Yolanda Beattie, who's Diversity and Inclusion Practice Leader at Mercer. Yolanda recently published a groundbreaking study that was backed by 15 asset managers and fund managers in Australia that found that the diversity statistics for the investment management industry in Australia are pretty dire. Welcome, Yolanda. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, no problem. Yolanda, could you please give our listeners a, a bit of a summation of the research and what you found by looking at the investment management industry? What we found was there were five main barriers to diversity. Firstly, there's an issue with attracting diverse talent. There's an issue with supporting diverse talent through the pipeline, and particularly I'm thinking they're women and particularly women with young families. Um, there's an issue in how we recruit. So we tend to hire from who we know and hire from a very well-worn path that's well-worn by mostly men, and that's from the sell side. We also have a trouble with trust in the industry. So female investment managers put the number one reason of the lack of diversity in the industry down to bias in decision-making. So trust is clearly an issue as well. So we're seeing issues kind of throughout the the employment life cycle, if you like, uh, and it really highlights the opportunity for uh, fund managers to really uh, look at their company-specific issues and and tackle some of the industry-wide problems as well. With that in mind, uh, so you've done all this research, and the statistics are pretty dire. It's uh, 76% of investment managers are male, 48 are private school educated, 76 did postgraduate studies in a master's of finance. What do you do to address that? What are some of the things that you've come up with as a potential suggestion? If we look at starting from the company-specific challenges, is that there are a number of organisations that are really coming to grips with this issue and really owning it as a problem and seeing it's something that's that's not just because women don't want to work in investment management, but it's because of the way that the industry has built itself, promoted itself and recruited over the years to create this type of homogeneity. So those that participated in the survey are really on board with tackling those issues and they're doing you know, some really great stuff in an attempt to uh, attract more diverse talent and keep more diverse talent. But there are plenty also that are still very, very, very early on in their journey, are still struggling and scratching their heads going, but I don't understand why this is a problem. I hire the best people for the job and why does this matter anyway? So there's still some of those that need ongoing help in, in helping understand why this is important for the culture of their companies and the performance of their funds. So for those uh, looking at those company-specific issues, they need to really get much clearer on the building the capability of people managers and portfolio managers in particular to, to really be much more aware of their biases and much more inclusive in how they manage and support their talent. So we found that women were disproportionately less likely to have felt that they had the support of their managers and that they weren't enabled to reach their potential. So we need to really help people leaders to get better at that. At the company-specific level, we also need to open up recruitment practices. We need to build long-term talent pools and we need to think much more laterally about who we bring into a team and value the diversity of perspectives that they bring, not just the precise technical skills that they've accumulated over their career. And there are a couple of funds that have done a really good job at at being really intentional at bringing diverse talent in and, and the results speak for themselves. But at an industry-wide level, there is a priority around promoting the industry to diverse talent. So at the moment, mostly people are recruiting talent from three or five years out of university at the earliest. So there's no presence on campus when students are starting to think of their career aspirations. So the people who are determining what kind of that they want a career in investment management are the ones that are aspiring to be the Warren Buffetts of the world. And so they have very male role models. 
that's something the industry needs to, to think about. That brings up a really good point because you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the statistics around graduates into fields of finance tend to be at about 50-50 men and women. But by the time you get to that three to five year out recruitment process, the statistics have changed pretty dramatically. So I would guess that there's a benefit from going down to the sort of the graduate level and sort of talking about the benefits or the, the value of getting into the investment management industry straight from that era too. And look, and that's that's the challenge. You're getting really good representation if we're just looking from a gender perspective of women coming into, say, bachelors of commerce, bachelors of echoes. But when it comes to the specialisation into the more quantitative subjects, which is obviously essential when we're talking investment management, you need to be a good thinker, a good lateral thinker, a good problem solver, but you've got to love numbers and be good at numbers as well. And so they're choosing the less quantitative subjects and that's across the board with STEM. So, you know, this is helping inspire young women who are just as mathematically minded as men, but just not as inclined or encouraged or motivated to to move into these fields because they don't see the role models. They don't see what's available to them and they don't understand what the industry is about. You know, it's a really important industry doing really purposeful work that serves a really important social good. But the Hollywood stereotypes of Wolf of Wall Street and billions and the like don't help an image that's, you know, already been tainted through the GFC. And so, you know, the industry needs to get much better at promoting itself on campus and talking about the the good story that it's got to tell. Now, we've been talking about men versus women or men and women. Are the same issues and the same strategies present as well when we're talking about cultural diversity as well, Yolanda, or are there different permutations and different sort of gradients when it comes to uh, cultural representation in the investment management industry? From a cultural representation point of view, we can see that industry is definitely weighted towards white Anglo-Celtic. And when we looked at that from a um, getting some of the qualitative data, and actually the quantitative data is probably a good place to start, we could see that non-Anglo-Celtic investment managers also felt they were less supported, valued and included than white Anglo-Celtic investment managers. Um, and that's supported, valued and included by their manager. So there definitely is that sense in the numbers that there's some exclusion going on by the archetypal norm to anybody who's outside of that archetype. And so when we then add to that the qualitative insights that we got, we can see it's so subtle. Most of the archetypal norm will just never know that the impression that they're giving for people outside of that group is that they're less valued and included. And so it's subtle things like aspiring investment managers, non-Anglo-Celtic aspiring investment managers, really feeling like they were they were locked out of a white boys club, that they had to kind of try to talk sports or play sports, all these different tactics to try to get in with the portfolio managers and build their profile that they felt was much more challenging for them because they weren't white. Now, that's all perception-based, right? So it was a statistically significant enough difference that there is a reasonably common difference in perception of who's getting valued and included. Just go back to your question about what do you do about that? It's actually pretty similar around that question of inclusion. It's about helping people leaders and portfolio managers understand the impact of their behaviour on their people and help them develop more inclusive mindsets and behaviours so they can really value people for the uniqueness that they bring and, and part of that is gender, part of that is culture. That's a very company-specific initiative that um, employers need to embrace. Now that you've done this very landmark piece of research, what are the next steps here and what's the industry support like for the next steps going on? Actually, you know, going to that point of addressing the problem and fixing it and hopefully, you know, making making for better outcomes in future. 
all of the ideas that I've suggested here were were ideas that were canvassed and developed in conjunction with the industry. We we had a six hour workshop with the CEOs and CIOs of the companies that supported and funded the original research to come up with solutions. And so many of those company specific initiatives are either already underway or going to be introduced by the individual companies as part of their ongoing people management strategies. Where there is need for collective opportunity, though, is where the industry is getting excited, particularly the asset owners getting excited to work together. So this is um, in the development of an employee value proposition and career framework that articulates the purpose of the industry and opportunities to get in, skills and capabilities that are needed, where your career can take you, how to get in at different levels, what to study at different points, showcasing stories of role models in the industry, that type of thing is what we're looking to to work together um, with the industry to develop. Uh, and in doing that, um, that will then come together in, in a, probably a website. I suspect that that's, you know, in the world of digital, really, you need to house this stuff somewhere and, and certainly not going to be in a brochure. So pulling that together in a website that the industry can then use to, to promote um, career opportunities and take out to to diverse talent pools is what we're excited about. So we've got four asset owners on board with us so far, and we're looking for another five, either asset owners or asset managers, but very keen to get some asset managers on board so we can round off the, the group and working together to address the issue over time. And how is this working in terms of industry engagement? Are asset owners engaging with their external fund managers to say, look, we see what your, what your diversity statistics look like. We know it's a problem for the industry, but we'd like to see how you're addressing it as part of the IMA process even? Not yet and not in any kind of coordinated approach. You know, certainly what I hear, it's a conversation that comes up. Certainly Mercer, in, in the way that we evaluate and assess fund managers, we we look at diversity in a broad and inclusion in a broad sense around processes and culture of a team. Um, so I know our team has that lens on when they're talking to fund managers. But at this stage, we don't have asset owners, we don't have any of our super fund clients saying to us, we want the data, the diversity data of your asset, of our asset managers. Can you please collect it for us? And, you know, we're <laughs> naturally, reply, you know, respond to client demand. So I certainly think there's a huge opportunity for the asset owners to be much more intentional about this as a view of managing their broader um, supply chain or another way to look at that is the whole talent management ecosystem. You know, they put so much of their cost goes to external asset managers. So getting a sense of what the diversity footprint of that is, I think, is the next step for this. And, you know, hopefully that will come in time. You've used the words intentionality a couple of times in the conversation. And I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. To what extent is intentionality, is it the domain of sort of one actor who has a very clear-headed idea as a leader and then implements it through the organization? Or to what extent can intentionality be just sort of an institutional perspective. What do you find when you're looking at it, particularly as it relates to diversity? It kind of needs to be both, but the, but it has to be with a leader. So you can definitely see intentionality. And it's got to be with, actually, it's not just leader, it's leaders. I've certainly seen scenarios where you have great intention at an organisational level that might be more driven by communications than necessarily the head and hearts of CEO and, and C-suite, but it needs to have that external intention. It's got to have the intention and the commitment at the um, CEO and C-suite, or in the case of investment managers, it's probably more portfolio managers, CIO, heads of investments and CEO. 
And that's got to be done with a genuine kind of curiosity and commitment around understanding the issue, why it's an ingredient for top-performing teams. It's basically as simple as that. If you have a homogenous team that don't feel that there's a high level of trust or that they're valued and included or that they can speak up or they can really challenge each other or they feel supported to manage their life ambitions as well as their career ambitions, if you don't have that kind of environment, then chances are there is either a small or a large amount of dysfunction in your team. And so this topic is just about building great teams of diverse thinkers solving complex problems. It's really as simple as that. The complication and the sensitivity comes into it when we look at the the facts around who is less likely to feel that, and that's either, you know, people who are different, and, and that's most often women or primary carers or people from a different cultural background. The magic to that is then overcoming our biology to exclude people who are different to intentionally include them, and, and that takes commitment from all levels. It's pretty interesting when you look at the statistics in the investment management industry, and a couple of fund managers have started publishing their own individual statistics, the diversity statistics are dire all down through every level. It's not as though there's, you know, there's a great talent pool at the very bottom that gets excluded going to the top. It really, it's really sort of all the way through the value proposition of a company. How do you embed that down through the layers of an institution, not just at sort of the CIO, CEO, CFO position, but down into the individual portfolio team? and down, you know, even to that frontline positioning as well. It's about having the conversation over and over again and keeping people engaged in it and talking about it in those broader terms, uh, as I just described. I don't think anybody can disagree with the principles that, you know, diverse people make, diverse teams people make better decisions. There's so much science around that. Diversity comes in a whole range of different forms. And even if you take the diversity equation out of it, so and you focus just on inclusion and the principles around feeling valued and included, being curious and open to different perspectives, different ideas, challenging the process, supporting talent to thrive, trust, empathy, you know, all of those things are what makes good leadership, right? And there's so much evidence of this, right? There's so much evidence that inclusion is just a hallmark of good leadership and really robust, scientifically proven, empirically tested leadership frameworks that when you unpack them, and I know this because I've done this, when you unpack these, you know, these rigorous empirically tested leadership frameworks, when you look at what are the components of that, of, of what makes a good leader, this got inclusion written all over it. The challenge is, is to help people understand the science behind why we exclude, and then you're able to help them rewire their brains and be much more conscious of that biology of exclusion and do that in a way that not only makes them better leaders, better managers, but better decision makers, and also just, you know, better people, because you're able to form closer relationships full stop, not just within work, but also in your personal life as well, when you when you understand these triggers. In your head, as you're developing this process that you're hoping to do at the industry-wide level or that you're seeking to do at the industry-wide level, have you come up with any benchmarks for what success looks like over the process? You know, sort of X number of new people by X date, or is it still too early at the planning stages to be able to talk that way? Yes, I'd like to get to that point. And yes, we have some baseline data, um, at least with the starting group um, of uh, appointments, promotion and exit rates of men and women. Um, I think, though, that that group's probably a little bit too narrow and what we need is a broader benchmark across the industry that would be best measured by or demanded by the asset owners, of course, that have a much broader reach than this project had. So I hope that that will come in time as we look to do this work and then understand progress. And I'd hope that that comes sooner rather than later. So we we're, we're able to make sure that we're actually making a difference. But for the time being, it's focusing on 
putting in place some of the infrastructure, if you like, that can help communicate the message and get the industry on board with the long-term challenge that lies ahead. Because it's really that long-term challenge that is um, that's something to keep an eye on. I mean, I was looking recently at the reports by the 30% Club, uh, the, the people who've committed to seeing 30% of women on ASX-listed company boards by 2018. And it's amazing to see that while the, the momentum was positive and very strong in the first couple of years, this year has been fairly dire in terms of yeah. keeping up progress. So, you know, there's that the starting phase of the project, but then keeping up that momentum sort of year in, year out and building to that very long-term goal that, that seems to be a challenge as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And what's the difficulty in both of those scenarios is that they're relatively small pools that you're talking about. Mm. You know, the ASX 200 boards, you know, well, there's probably there's a couple of thousand directors that you're talking about there. Mm. And similarly with this profession, it's a small profession. It's tightly held, low turnover. And once you're, often when you're in a role, you know, you might never move out of that role. You're a portfolio manager at 40 for the rest of your life. So um, it's got some very specific challenges to it. And that was part of the reason why I was attracted to the challenge, because when you do have those small pools like that, it, it should be in some ways easy to fix because, again, with the right intention, it's a smaller number to influence. So, yeah, but it does, but still it takes time because the movement isn't as significant, the turnover isn't as significant, and there's this supply issue of getting the right talent in. That's not so much the case with the ASX 200. There are plenty of talented women that are ready to sit on boards, so that's slightly different. Uh, but it certainly talks to the need to, to be vigilant and and to really engage chairs. And it also talks to the power of investors, of course, right? That's where this project came from. You know, the movement that we've had on the ASX 200 boards is significantly due to investors standing up and saying, you know, we're not comfortable that you can be governed well by a group of homogenous people. It demonstrates that when investors put their head and hearts behind something, they can they can move they can achieve some pretty significant movements. So that's exciting. I'll be really interested to see because there's been a number of new, smaller niche superannuation funds that have launched this year. Um, you know, one of them focusing more on women, one of them focusing more on sort of younger people and, and the other one on tech. And I'll be interested to see whether or not they drive that as well, being as how there should be a mission alignment uh, between who they represent and the members they want to attract and potentially the, the way in which they invest that money. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, Yolanda. Well, I thank you very much for taking the time to walk us through this and, uh, of course, wish you success with the project. Uh, I've been talking with Yolanda Beatty, who is the Diversity and Inclusion Practice Leader at Mercer. Thanks a lot for your time, Yolanda. Pleasure, Rachel. Speak to you soon.